Remember that? Busyness. Busyness? I think that was it, right? Close. Close. Yeah. Consumerism. Do you remember we talked about consumerism when we talked about? I'll just forget. Yeah, it was the biggest enemy was consumerism. That was one of the things we looked at. Um, but so far in this, in this series, too, specifically, we've talked about secularism, um, pluralism, ambition. Uh, Elliot taught on exceptionalism. My friend John talked about outrage. Uh, last week, we talked about social media. We talked about technology. I want to talk about just kind of more money, finances, um, greed, wealth, all those sorts of things in general. Um, and our disposition towards that. I thought we would start off by having a little, I don't know if this is fun or just fascinating, probably a little bit of both. And I know that I've used this before, but this would have been years ago that I w- would have used this. Um, bless you. Um, has anyone heard of this website? Oh, that's kind of funky. The Global Rich List. Have we heard of this? Let's see if we can make this a little bit bigger. Think of, I think Rick Reinhardt was here that day. Right. This would have been, yeah, this was, this was a long time ago. So there's this website here. It's called the Global Rich List. Okay, so for, that, for you that are unaware of the Global Rich List. So we're going to um, choose our income. We live in the United States in dollar. And somebody give me an annual income that you think is pretty standard. For family or individual? Say for family. Fifty, seventy-five. What do you think, Isan? Fifty. Okay, let's start with fifty thousand dollars. Say your family makes fifty thousand dollars, right? Which, okay, there's, and we are gonna. What this website is gonna do is it's gonna show you globally how rich you are. Okay. You are in the top point three one percent of people in the world. You are approximately the, I, mean, I don't know exactly how they come up with this number, but the 18th millionth, 652,583rd richest person in the world. Now this kind of goes a little fun, you can have a little bit more fun with this. Um, in one hour, you make $26 an hour, okay? Uh, the average laborer in Indonesia makes about 39 cents an hour. Um, it would take, you earn $50,000 in one year. It would take the average laborer in Zimbabwe about 49 years to earn $50,000. So after this year, they're going to be working until 2068. Um, they kind of have this fun. Um, how long it takes you to purchase a minute of Coke versus how long it would take an average laborer in Ghana to purchase a Coke. So you, if you go out and you work in about uh, a minute, you'd make about, in about a minute, you'd have enough money for a Coke. Meanwhile, the average laborer in Ghana would have to work almost for one day just to purchase one Coke, right? Um, Your monthly income could pay the average, or the monthly salaries of 218 doctors in Azerbaijan, um, and then I think that is about the it, okay? Let's do one more, shall we? Let's say, what would be, um, give somebody throwing out another number. The number to buy 
in this neighborhood, you'd have to make at least 100K. And okay. 120. Let's say 120,000. Okay. Let's see where that puts you if you make $120,000 a year. Or say combined. Say you make about $60,000. Say your wife makes about $60,000. Or your spouse uh, makes about $60,000. Here we go. Again, we're going to be, anybody want to think like what percentage you're going to be? Point, point, point oh five, point oh seven, 4,267,335, right? Think about that. Think about that, right? I think the 1% number, um, So if you do that, minimum in America, you're still in the top 10% of the world. Right. Right. Um, and then, again, you can take this and you can do wealth where you could say, hey, um, this is how much equity I have in my home, the value of my possessions, the value of my investments, and then you can show your results. Um, here's what's fascinating about this website. And, again, you can play with it. Let's just do one more. Let's just, let's just say, let's just say you are a, a millionaire. Do you remember when you were a kid and you thought if you had a million dollars, you were going to like, you were going to, you were going to like have a, a Lamborghini and a mansion in Beverly Hills. You remember those days? And now it's like a million dollars. I was like, cool. Right. Okay. So you make $1 million in a year. Dustin, it was 0.07. You're going to go to? I'm going to go 0 0.00. 0.00? <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, it's 0.01. Yeah. 0.01. So maybe, so 578,000 people would be richer than you, right? And again, we can kind of go down and play with, um, if you are in a million dollars, it's going to take the average worker in Zimbabwe 980 years to earn that amount of money. Huh? A century. A century. No. A millennium. A millennium. A century is a hundred years. Um, you're gonna, you're gonna make be able to buy a coke in, in four seconds. That was that was the joke when Bill Gates would walk down the street, and if there was like a hundred dollar bill, on the street, he would lose more money stopping to bend over to pick it up than he would if he just kept walking. I, I don't know if you remember that. Um, you could pay for 4,300 doctors in Azerbaijan. Um, anyway, it's just a fun website to look at um, and to play around with, and you can kind of plug in some numbers. And the reason I, I bring this up, um, as we think about money and greed and wealth and finances and all those sorts of things, you know, again, just some, some stats here would be that, you know, most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Average American teenager spends about 150 bucks a week, right? Every seven seconds, a child dies of hunger-related causes, and we will throw away about 14% of the food we purchase. About 3 million children a year will die from uh, causes related to hunger. Now, not just starving to death, but 
malnutrition related um, hunger, all those sorts of things. So if you take 3 million and then you divide that kind of by the time in the year, that's where you get that seven second number. America, we control about 20% of the world's wealth um, and we're about 4% of the population. Now that number didn't make sense to me, so I broke it down. Say you lived in a town or you lived on an island of 100,000 people, right? And that island or that town had about a million dollars in it. So say about 4,200 people would have access to about $200,000, which would be $47 per person. And the rest of the 95,000 people in that town had the other $800,000, which would be about $8 per person, right? So again, you talk that if you, if you and I live in America, right, if, using that kind of number, we are on average about um, six times wealthier than kind of the average person living in the world, right? Now, when I share these things, I don't, the idea here is perspective, not guilt, right? The idea here is perspective, not guilt. Sometimes guilt doesn't, guilt doesn't change us, right? Guilt might make us feel guilty for a short time and maybe we change our behavior for a short time or we kind of walk out of here thinking like, oh, wow, I'm kind of a bad, rich person. But it doesn't actually change the, the foundations of our heart. So I just wanted to give some perspective on where you and I kind of sitting in this room, right, would be. Um, I want to start off with this premise. And the premise here is that I'm wealthy, right? And I kind of look around the people sitting in this room and I know that most of us are employed and have jobs and uh, have the ability to make money and are making money. And again, we looked at even if we were at the very minimal 13,500 poverty line, globally we are in the top 10%. Do you guys remember that movement that happened a couple of years ago? It was the one percenters. Yeah. Remember that? And they were like all angry and angst. Anybody that's living pretty much in America is, is a one percenter, right? They are the one percenters, right? So you and I are the wealthy ones. And we don't think of it because we think of private jets and we think of mansions and we think of um, disposable income and shopping at South Coast Plaza and those sorts of things. But globally, we are the magazine life, right? We are the rock star. We are the TV. We, that's who we are, right? People look at us like, you live in America? You own a home? You have a car? Wait, you have two cars, right? That's how people look at us. Now, the number, second thing I want to say here, too, is that we're bombarded with messages of dissatisfaction, right? Um, according to Consumer Reports, this happens about 250 times a day where you're gonna get some sort of an advertisement, some sort of a message, some sort of a, um, a sign that says, hey, um, there's something's wrong in your life and here is the product that is going to fix it, right? You get that about 250 times a day. Now, in all my years of studying and researching on the internet, I could think that this could be the most perfect GIF that I have, not gift, G-I-F, that I have ever found to talk about the way that we are bombarded with distractions, okay? And I might make you watch it 250 times. <laughs> this, this to me, and I, 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 like I said, this 250 times a day we get bombarded with messages of dissatisfaction, right? We are told again and again and again that whatever lifestyle we have, whatever we have, our product, our house, our car, our um, hair, our lack of hair, our clothing, our this, it's not good enough. But by the way, we have, we have that product for you, right? 
Mike Cosper in his book called Rediscovering the Wonder, he says, dissatisfaction is the fuel of our consumer culture, provoking our longings and directing them at products. That something is missing from our lives is answered by ads from products that say, I have what you have been looking for, right? So this message of dissatisfaction coupled with companies claiming the cure, the product, to that dissatisfaction, is the dis-ease, right, the sense, the lack of ease, that, right, or the disease that you and I experience 250 times a day. Um, when we talked about secularism a couple, a couple of weeks ago, and we talked, one of the things that secularism is doing is it's a subtraction story, right? It's a subtraction narrative. Secularism is basically kind of subtracting the God-religious narrative out of Western culture, right? It's kind of being subtracted out, and they think that science, technology, progress is going to be what fills in, right? But also in that secularism culture, right, where God would give us identity, meaning, purpose, community, right? What's being filled in here is marketing and advertising. I, I think that time, too, I talked about a documentary called The Persuaders, and the persuaders, um, they admitted, these, these marketing advertising companies admitted that what they do is that they've studied churches, faith organizations, religious groups, and they've studied how they are able to provide identity, meaning, community, purpose, and life, right? So they would study our church. How does this church come together? What do they do? And then they would basically take that information, that knowledge that they use, and they would apply it to their products so that their products then could give you the identity, the purpose, the meaning, the community, right? This is the world that we live in, right? We are getting these messages of dissatisfaction 250 times a day. One of the thoughts I had on this too was, um, Dustin, imagine if somebody would whisper into you, or say you got a message 250 times a day on your, te- on your, on your phone, text messages. Your wife doesn't really love you. She thinks that you're generally unattractive. She's dissatisfied with who you are as a husband. She thinks you're a lousy father. She is, um, she's, she's generally over you and could care. You know, if you got that text message 250 times a day, right? If we got that message 250 times a day, dude, that would mess with us, right? That would mess with me if somebody was whispering into my ear, yeah, Robin, she's just kind of puts up with you right? Robin, she, she thinks other men are more attractive than you. And again, just this kind of message of like, there is this dissatisfaction, right? So the first thing is, is that, hey, we're rich. The second thing is, is that this, this, this kind of concept of dissatisfaction is what we're getting all the time. We're getting people and people say, you're dissatisfied. We have the cure for you. Now, let me talk, the, lastly, here's the third kind of thing that I want to talk about. I want to say that greed might be a problem for me, Okay. Greed might be a problem for me. And by me, I mean everybody in this room. So you're saying that to yourself, me, okay? Then you see that there's an asterisk there if you want to read between the lines on that one. Mark, can you, you got that one? You want me to read it? Okay. It's, it, let me tell you, tell you, I want to be gentle about it, but I'll say it's a problem for you. Everybody sitting in this room, greed is a problem for you, okay? Now you're thinking there, nobody walked in this church this morning thinking like, man, I... I need to go take Eucharist this morning. I have been greedy this morning, and I need to confess that to the Lord. Nobody walked into, I've 
20 years I've almost I've been doing pastoring, nobody's ever come to me and said, man, you know what, Eric, there's, there's greed in my heart, and I need to confess that to you, right? Here's why, okay? Here's why. Let me talk about greed for a second. By the way, let's do this. Let's start here. That Jesus had more to say about money than he did about prayer. I was thinking about that as we were kind of starting off with our prayer time. I've always thought, like, maybe we should just put the offering box in the middle and just say, let's start by just giving, right? That's what Jesus placed a priority on. Do you know that Jesus, he talked more about, or instead of our 70 days of prayer, let's do 70 days of generosity of giving, right? That's what Jesus, that's, that's the emphasis that Jesus put on money, right? And here's the thing about money, um, is again, as we talk about greed and as we think about this problem, I want to look at Jesus's words because he talks about it. So if you got a Bible there, go to Mark chapter 4, verse 19. It's on page 701. Okay, so this, again, my always eternal complaint about those Bibles is they give you no context of where you are in the in this, in this scripture. And the text is incredibly small. Mark 4 is the parable of the sower, right? A recap on the parable of the sower. Jesus tells this parable about a farmer who goes out to scatter seed. Some uh, falls on a path, some falls on a rocky place, some falls on thorns, some falls in soil, right? He says, and then people are like, well, what does your parable mean? And Jesus says, well, the... The farmer is God, the, the seed is the word of God, right? So the, the farmer is, is God or Jesus, and he's kind of spreading his gospel message, his seed, right? And he says that some falls on the path and the birds come and steal it. Satan kind of, maybe you've seen this where somebody accepts the word of God, but then just something happens and it just gets snatched right out of them, right? Then Jesus says that some of that gospel word falls on the rocky places and the seed in the rocky places, it, it just is unable to go down and create any depth in anyone's life. Um, so maybe they're that kind of very shallow American Christian or just kind of cultural Christian, right? And then he says that there's some seed that falls, right, on the ground. And it says, and it produce, it goes down and it produces some root. Um, but then it says this in, in 419, it says... It says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things come in and choke the the word, making it unfruitful. So he talks about the worries of life. And then he uses this phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth, right? The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things strangles our response to the gospel, right? It literally chokes it out because the money and, and the things and the prosperity teach us self-sufficiency and security through money, right? And it strangles our response to be able to say, Jesus, all of my trust is in you and you alone, right? So when we see this, right? But Jesus calls it this very interesting word, deceitful, right? Tricky. Um, it, it's, it's something that you have to like be careful of, okay? Now, one other passage, go to Luke Chapter 12, this is on page 727.
Another parable here, the parable of the rich fool. Um, Jesus is teaching, and there's two brothers in the crowd, right? We'll call the two brothers Mark and Brian. Brothers from different mothers. And the two brothers, they come, one of the brothers comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance between the two of us, right? And Jesus replies in verse 14, he says, Man, uh, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, right? So he says, watch out. Be careful. Now, imagine if you guys came in this morning and said, hey, I'm so happy you guys are at church. Thank you. And we do the whole church thing. And at the very end, I say, offering box in the back. And we're going to be here next week. I said, hey, listen, watch out. Be careful. When I was setting up out there this morning for the coffee and the chairs and everything, I noticed a lot of black widow spiders kind of out and around on the patio, right? Would you walk out there with the same kind of like, oh, whatever? Or would you be careful to look out for black widow spiders on the patio, right? If I said to you, hey, by the way, uh, have a great time out there, but watch out. Be careful. The coffee that I made for some reason is exceptionally hot this morning. Just be careful when you drink it, right? What I am doing to you is I am informing you of a hidden danger you are unaware of, right? There is a danger, black widow spiders, right? Um, Extra hot coffee, right? Um, That you are unaware of, that you need to be told about. This is what Jesus is doing, in which Jesus is saying that greed is a hidden danger. Again, this is why I say might, right? That you are not aware of that you have to be told about. Beware of this. Be cautious. And he says all kinds of greed. Because when we think of greed, you know, who do we think of? Bernie Madoff. Man, that crook that just stole all those people's money. I just rewatched a little bit, or like the second half of that movie came out a couple years ago, The Big Short. Anybody remember that movie, The Big Short? Um, Christian Bale and Gosling and um, uh, Steve Carell. It was about the housing market crisis and how all the banks just basically swindled everybody's money and we point to those people and say no that's the greedy ones over there right right those are the greedy ones um i was thinking too about um it was a couple years ago albert Pujols. remember when he signed with the angels right uh some people are get my sports analogies and some people are just sorry for for you Pujols was a longtime st louis cardinal baseball player and he was up for a new contract they offered him a contract at 220 million dollars for say five, ten years, right? And instead, he took the contract with the Angels for $254 million. And we sometimes like, well, that's greed. He should have stayed with St. Louis, right? That got, how in the world? $30 million, right? So sometimes we look at greed and we think of the big ones, the private jet people, the mansions, multiple homes, the tax evaders, those sorts of things, right? All kinds of greed. Greed would be just the love of money, right? We just kind of know that. Greed would be anxiety about money, Greed would be the security that money brings you. Greed would be the impulses to buy things that you don't need. Have I started preaching yet? Greed would be hoarding. Greed would be entitlement. Greed would be overspending. Uh, I could 
put a slash of, of debt on that. Greed would be comparison. Greed would be taking a job based solely on salary. N.T. Wright would say that the ultimate conversation stopper in our day is, well, you can make more money doing it that way, <laughs> right? So whatever happens, you know, like, hey, what, what should we do here? Well, let's just figure out the way that we can make more money, right? It's like the ultimate conversation stopper that just stops conversation. Greed is a, just a little more mindset that that's just kind of happening. What I just need is just a little bit more of this. Just a little bit more room in my house. Just a little bit bigger car. Just a little more money. Just that next raise, right? I'm not done yet. I got a whole other page. Greed is this upgrade mentality, right? Greed is material disappointment. Have you ever bought something? only to find out how disappointing it is not too long after that. And you're just kind of looking at it like, oh man, I got the iPhone 5S. Mm. And they just came out with the iPhone 6. You know what I mean? They kind of have that disappointment in whatever you buy. Greed keeps us from asking questions about our lifestyle. How much should I spend on my kid or kids at Christmas? Do we bring that before the Lord? Do I need another? Well, let's go skip that one. <laughs> um, is there a limit for a car purchase? What about a pair of sneakers? What's appropriate to spend on a pair of sneakers? One of my favorite current Instagrams, good old preachers and sneakers. This pastor... Um, Pastor Crank, I don't even know who this guy is, but this guy is just preaching it right there in those off-white blazer serenas at a little over a grand for a pair of shoes, right? Greed keeps us from asking questions about our lifestyle, right? So when you look at these examples of greed, this page and this page, did anybody at one point say, yeah, that's me, right? Jesus says, you need to be careful about that. You need to watch out, right? Okay, so again, just this kind of, this kind of, um, this kind of mass confession. Let's read this all together. Okay, can we do this, right? We don't do mass confessions often here. You know, we're not the Catholic Church, but we're going to do a mass confession together. We're going to read this together. Ready? Greed is a problem in my life, and I'm possibly obvious to it. Oblivious. Ob obvious. Obviously. I'll have to cut that out of the week. <laughs> Greed is a problem in my life, and I'm I am oblivious to it, right? Until now, I've, I've made you all aware of it, okay? We're going to start with this. This was a very cheery beginning to the sermon this morning. <laughs> you sitting here are wealthy and rich. Dissatisfaction is the dominant message that you're hearing kind of throughout your day. Greed is, is a problem. It's a problem for us. Now, I want to kind of think of some counter-narratives to this, okay? I want to kind of think of some counter-narratives to, to understanding this. Um, and we'll start here with this idea of stewardship over wealth. Anybody heard of that word stewardship? Kind of that old, kind of old word, right? I feel like it's a Puritan word, you know, kind of a steward. Stewardship is this idea that all we have is a gift from God. And we are simply caretakers 
stewards, overseers, managers of what God has given me, of what God has given us, right? The Lord owns the earth and all it contains, the world and all who live in it. Do you know what that includes? What's in your bank account? You know what that includes? Your house. You know what that includes? The money that's in your wallet, the clothing that's on your back. God owns how much? All of it. Everything. Every animal of the field and forest belongs to me, the creator. I know every movement of the birds in the sky and every animal of the field is in my thoughts. The entire, notice there's not an asterisk there, right? The entire world and everything it contains is mine, right? Everything, everything is God. See, sometimes when we think about our possessions and we think about what we have and we get anxiety, we get stressed, we get frustrated, we think about wanting to build more, we simply forget everything we have is a gift from God, right? Whatever God has given you, entrusted you with, you got to start with getting the ownership question right. Who owns it? God. God, it's yours, right? There was a story, I, I meant to bring the book, and I'm going to try and paraphrase it, but there was a Mennonite meeting, and there was, they were trying to, to um, determine, the Mennonites are kind of famous for being pacifists, right? And the Mennonites were trying to determine if it was okay to go into war. It was, it was World War II, right? So they had this meeting, are our young men allowed to enlist in the army, right? And one of the old Mennonite men says, um, what's going to happen, right, if, if, if we lose this war and they come and take your possessions? And a young Mennonite man stands up and he says, they're all gods anyway. I'll let him deal with that, right? And he understood this kind of concept of stewardship, right, of of over, that God owns and manages it all, right? So again, I just think that at the very beginning, as we think about our wealth, whatever you have, if you're 13,500, Jesse, that was really fascinating to know that. I did not know that. If you're 13,500, if you're 134,000, if you're 1.35 million, whatever it is, you simply look at that and you say, God, this is yours. Help me to manage it. Help me to take care of it. Help me to oversee it in a way that would be faithful to you. Jesus' parable of the ten talents. We're given a certain amount of money, talent, abilities, right? And what do we do with that? We just want to be faithful to our master, whether it's ten talents, five talents, or one talent. Another uh, translation says, uh, translates it into money. Bags of gold, right? Pieces of silver. Whatever it is, we want to simply be faithful to what God has given us, right? We forget about that. Second thing. Contentment over dissatisfaction. Contentment over dissatisfaction. This beautiful proverb here. It is much better to live simply, surrounded in holy awe and worship of God, than to have great wealth with a home full of trouble. It's much better to have a kind, loving family, even with little, than to have great wealth with nothing but hatred and strife all around you. Anybody resonate with that? Right? So much of our lives, we kind of stare at that horizon, thinking that if we only had that little extra money, 
It's going to be better when we get there. That raise, that car, that home, that outfit, that latest piece of technology, right? And we kind of stare at wealth and we think that that's what's going to get us there. But it never does, does it? Right? It always leaves us empty, wanting more. There is a fascinating study. I need to use the whiteboard for this. Fascinating study done a couple years ago. I think at one point we've we've talked kind of talked about this, but a guy named Daniel Kahneman, another guy named um, Angus Deaton. Now Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, these guys are like they've won the Nobel Peace Prize in economics. That's kind of the level that they're at. I'm not quite at that level. I'm not sure if I ever will, right? So they talked about, they did like all this study about money and happiness. They called it emotional well-being, okay? So say on their, on their chart here, say you made zero dollars. Um, and I'm going to put a million dollars. Let's just put a million over here. Okay, and then here, like, you're super, on this side, like, you're just miserable, okay? But up here, you're incredibly happy, okay? Does that make sense? Everybody follow my chart so far? So these guys did this study, like, how much money would you have to make? Where, at what point are you going to be the happiest? Anybody want to take a guess? The happiest. California, a couple hundred thousand. Couple hundred thousand. So maybe, maybe like over, if you made somewhere over here, say four, five hundred, six hundred thousand, you would be, you would be very happy, right? Anybody else want to guess? Is this a proven? No, they've what they've done is they've done research and studies and interviews, and again, they've won the Nobel Peace Prize in economics for their work in this area. So this is kind of what they, this is their life's work, which um, the, the two folks that, who have done all this work are named Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton. So anybody else want to take a guess? This is pretty What's that? Invest your money in gold. This is per year, yeah. Fifteen thousand. Okay, so you're like over here. I think this is kind of. I think this is kind of just for the United States. Their study is just for the United States. So what would you guess, Jesse? Um, you know, it's, it's not a number, it's a mentality. It's, okay. You know, that if you, if you grow up with nothing, you're happy with a little bit of something. Mm -hmm. If you grow up with something, you're not happy until you've got everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like with that, like, you know, it's, 
funny growing up I remember hearing somebody's dad made fifty thousand dollars a year. And that was the thing that blew my mind. Uh, where you know, as a kid growing up where I did. Like those guys rich. Mm-hmm. Super rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, to me, it's, it's kind of, you can't put a number on that. It's yeah. Really, it's, it's you have what makes you happy. Yeah. And Here probably the, mo- the higher it gets, the less happy you become. So I guess I would say zero. <laughs> <laughs> the price of that roll right. one dollar. <laughs> Leah, you were going to say something? Well, I'm curious how they did that, that they, they collapsed or they put that back yeah. together. Because yeah. They called it emotional, so not just happiness, they called it, their phrase would be emotional well-being, right? Let me, let me, t- let me explain a little bit, because I think this will help us understand. They put the number, and I know that this is, I know that if I put it here, it's not in the middle, but they put the number that, y- that kind of met, the number where you are very happy at about $75,000, right? Okay? So what they said, what their study said was that people who make significantly less, right, People who are over here, what happens is, is they spend significant time and energy worrying about basic necessities. How am I going to pay the rent this month, right? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to make sure that my kids have the right things, right? So people who are making less than that, significantly less, they do have a, they, they emotionally, they spend a lot of time, they spend a lot of their well-being trying to figure out how to create the basic necessities, right? So... But then what they also say is that people who make significantly more than that, right? What does Biggie Small say? More money, more problems. More money, more problems, right? So now you start spending a lot of your emotional well-being thinking about, well, how do, how do I insure this? And how do I make sure that my boat is waxed? And how do I make sure that, you know, I have the right um, property, I paid the right property tax, so you have all these things. So what they say is that it, it kind of operates a bit like a bell curve, Okay. And again, this number that they say that kind of their emotional well-being, the max emotional well-being, is right about at $75,000. Listen, if your neighbor, right, say your neighbor makes $100,000 or they together make $100,000 or $125,000, right, maybe they drive a Lexus instead of a Toyota, right? Maybe they drive the Acura instead of the Honda, right? Maybe they go out to eat a few more times than you do, right? Maybe they're able to remodel, but really their emotional well-being isn't all that much greater. You're just as happy. And again, there is a point when actual your emotional well-being diminishes because you spend more time. I mean, we know what it's like. We just got, we recently got a brand new car. And do you know how much I worry about my children ruining that thing, right? You know what I'm talking about? You get the new couch and nobody can sit on it because you're worried that somebody... And people who have all the possessions and stuff and all that stuff, their emotional well-being decreases because they're so worried and anxious and frustrated with it, right? $75,000. I would say this, is that you and I have an incredible opportunity. If you're somewhere in this neighborhood for your family, somewhere in this neighborhood, plus or minus a little bit, you have an incredible opportunity just to be content with where you are, with who you are, with what you have, right? Chasing that next thing is not going to make you any happier. It's not going to increase your emotional well-being. Um, 
these two verses, such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life, right? Your life, your emotional well-being diminishes. Again, a brilliant study, Daniel Kahneman, Angus Deaton, if you want to go look it up. Paul talks about learning to be content in all the circumstances he has. One more. I know I'm going a little long this morning. I'm sorry about that. Let's talk about generosity over greed. Here's another great gift right here. Because most of us, we live with this treadmill of if I just made a little bit more, right, I could afford to be generous, right? And there's a generosity hot dog at the end of the stick, and we're like that little dog thinking, I'm going to get there one day where I make that little bit more, then then I can be generous, right? Or you have this other kind of competing narrative in our voice, in our head that says, once this life situation changes, once I get that kid out of college, once I pay off my car, once I refinance my house, then I'm going to free up the money to be generous, right? So we have sometimes a lot of these competing voices in our head. Um, but here's what we know about this is it's is just a lie. It's just a lie to think that it's just watching this dog thinking that that dog is eventually going to get that wiener. It's not, right? He's just going to be chasing on that treadmill. As long as my computer would work, he would be chasing on that treadmill. What happens is guilt settles in, right? Guilt settles in. Christian Smith is a sociologist and did a a study on giving and generosity in churches. It's called Passing the Plate. He said in all the study and all the research and all the observation that they did with Christians and studies and interviews and all this stuff. He says, we were struck by what seemed in many American Christians as a kind of comfortable guilt. He says, most Christians are aware they're not giving as God would want them to. Initially, they can say the right stuff. Under the surface, they're guilty, but it's a comfortable guilt. They keep that awareness at low enough level, at a low enough level of discomfort, so they don't actually have to increase they're giving. A lot of Christians, not just in this church, but kind of everywhere. I talk to my dad. I talk to other pastors. We just kind of live with this low level of guilt, right? We want to make a little bit more to give more. We have this comfortable guilt. Again, as I talked at the very beginning, per- guilt isn't part of the agenda. We need perspective. That's helpful, right? But guilt isn't part of the agenda. It can change behavior. It will not change a heart. Paul talks in Corinthians, he says, remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop, right? I love this. This is one of my favorite verses on money. Paul says, I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your mind what you will give, right? I want you to think about that. I want you to be intentional about that. Take time and think about what you give. Now, this isn't the church's plea for money, okay? Don't hear that as, I know that those messages kind of get competed. But listen, as a follower of Jesus, we're called to be generous and we're called to give. There's just, that's just a non-negotiable, right? I want you to think and I want you to take over and I want you to make up your mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories. Oh, please give to the church. We're going to have to close the doors if you don't, right? And against arm twisting, listen, if you don't give, you're really not a good Christian and I will... I'll, t- I'll call you out. I know how exactly how much every person gives in this church, and I will put the numbers up there on the screen if you don't increase your giving, right? Just take time, think it over, make up your mind what you will give. 
that will protect you against sob stories, arm twisters. God loves it when the giver delights in giving. Giving should bring joy, right? Giving should bring happiness. Giving should bring emotional well-being. My second favorite verse on money in the Bible is this, is that it's possible to give away and become richer, right? It's also possible to hold on too tightly and lose everything. Yes, the liberal man, Isan, not the liberals, conservatives and liberals, liberal as in freely giving. I don't want you to get confused by Democrats. <laughs> yes, the liberal man shall be rich by watering others. He waters himself. You and I, I would say, it's so good, again, because Paul talks about this, the Bible talks about this, to learn the joys of generous living, right? That's what Christmas is all about, right? Why are we so joyful and happy when we give that gift to someone else, right? When we watch our kids open up that present that they've been bugging us about all month long, when we give something to our spouse and we see that twinkle in their eye, when we give something to a friend that is significant or meaning, we need to learn and to discover the joys of generous living. I love you guys, so let me end with this quote because I just want to, we just need to zoom out on this quote a little bit. Brian McLaren is just going to, we live in the most affluent culture in the most affluent period of human history. If we can't disciple, discipline ourselves to learn the joys of generous living, we're an embarrassment to the gospel. You know that emoji with, the, with eyes that are like, that's what it means right there, right? Can you... We live in the most affluent culture and the most affluent period of human history. If we can't discipline ourselves to learn the joys of generous living, we're an embarrassment to the gospel. Jesus, how much did Jesus give? Everything. His whole life, everything was given for you and I, right? And then God says, I am going to give you a windfall of money. I'm going to give that to you. Now, will you be generous with it? Will you steward it? Will you oversee it? Will you be content with what you have? And will you be the kind of person that chooses generosity over greed? All right? That's about all I got for this morning. Should we do a couple questions on that?